0: This afternoon we're looking at uh, verses 97 to 104 and verses 105 to 112 of Psalm 119. One of the things you should notice right away about uh, verses 97 to 104 is that there are in this stanza no promises and no petitions. It's all about the past and the present. Another thing you should notice about it is that the main idea of the stanza is very clear. You can't mistake it here. The idea is uh, restated. The main idea is restated uh, three times after the first statement. You find it first stated in 98, then again in verses 99 and 100, and finally again in verse 104. And we'll just use... Uh, verse 104, uh, then, in order to uh, state that main theme through your precepts, I get understanding. The precepts of the Lord give us understanding. That's the main uh, point of this stanza. Let's begin our discussion of it, then, by looking at verse 104. Um You have there that word understanding, and this is one of uh, the uh, rich uh, series of words that the scriptures use to describe the whole concept of wisdom. We've talked about some of these words in connection with the study of the book of Proverbs, and what I want to do, we have several of them here in this stanza, so I want to take a few minutes to Talk about each of those words as we encounter them here. This one is the word understanding. If you look at the uh, theological word book of the Old Testament, uh, they describe this word as meaning to discern, to have the ability to discern. And they uh, refer to 1 Kings 3, verse 9, to illustrate this meaning. 1 Kings 3, verse 9. What we have there is uh, words of Solomon in his answer to the Lord's request, or to the Lord's uh, promise to him that he will give him what he asks. And he says to the Lord, Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. Now, the word understanding there is not the word in our text. In fact, if you have any marginal notes in your Bible, you may see that that word there is uh, hearing. Give to your servant a hearing heart to judge your people that I may discern, there's the word, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. So it's the ability then to discern between good and evil. That's the the point of this word understanding in the text. Your Word gives me the ability to discern good and evil. It teaches me the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. This understanding, then, is one of the benefits of the commandments of God, that the commandments of God teach us this discernment, this discernment between good and evil. So that's the, the basic idea, the main idea of the passage. But he carries that idea a step farther in verses 98, 99, and 100, where he uh, talks not just about the understanding that the word gives him, but that this understanding exceeds then the understanding of other groups of people first his enemies, then his teachers and then the ancients. And so we have to look at each of those statements also. You, through your commandments, verse 98, make me wiser than my enemies. And this is the word uh, that's usually translated wise or wisdom in the scriptures. (coughs) And uh, the theological word book notes that this uh, concept of wisdom is a, a concept that doesn't just include in it the idea of knowledge, but includes in it the idea of the ability to put the knowledge to use. To um, It's a practical wisdom that we have here. And so uh, when you read about the building of the tabernacle, you read about the craftsmen who built the tabernacle and how God gave them his spirit and made them wise in their uh, work. They were skilled craftsmen and they were called wise because of their skill in their craft. Um, Solomon too, his wisdom was partly partly illustrated in the scriptures by his his ability to answer the questions of the Queen of Sheba but also in that very practical matter of the prostitutes and their babies. You get both sides of wisdom. It's It's a practical thing as well as a thing of knowledge. Rulers are considered wise, not only if they have understanding, but also if they rule well. And so when he talks about being wiser than his enemies, he's talking about both knowing and practicing the commandments. He's wise in the practice, if we may put it that way, of the craft of godliness. That's where he, this wisdom resides. And, and you see then why he, he puts it this way when he's comparing himself to his enemies. His, his, the difference between himself and his enemies is not just a difference of understanding, but it's a difference of practice. You have made me wiser than my enemies. Now that's not really a, a very remarkable claim, of course, for a godly man <coughs> make. A godly man uh, would certainly see clearly that the Lord has given him a a gift of wisdom that exceeds the wisdom that is of this world, and he would thank God for that. But notice too that he says then in that connection that uh, he is wiser than his enemies for The commandments of God are ever with me or are ever mine. They belong to me. You've given them to me. You've made them my possession. And so through this gift that you have given to me, I have become wiser than my enemies. The second statement he makes in verse 99 goes a little bit farther. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation Here he doesn't compare himself to his enemies, but to his teachers. And the word that he uses here is not the same word that we find in verse 104. It's a different word and would be better translated perhaps insight. I have more insight than all my teachers. The theological word book of the Old Testament says of this word that it's the ability to think through a complex series of thoughts. And it's It's again a very appropriate word to use in this context. He's saying, I have more ability to think through these complex things than my teachers. This uh, insight would be a, a, a gift that a teacher needs. A teacher needs to have this kind of insight to be able to explain his subject to his students. And he's here claiming that he has more insight than his teacher's. And the reason why he has more insight than his teachers is that your testimonies are my meditation. He has taken the time to meditate at length on the testimonies of the Lord, and through this meditation he has gained great insight into those testimonies. And then he goes one step further in verse 100, I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. And the word for ancients here means, in some contexts, old men, and in other contexts, it's the word that's translated as elders. The elders of the town, or the elders of the city, or the elders of the nation, or whatever. I have more uh, understanding, he says, and that's the same word that's used in 104, by the way. I have more understanding than the ancients. But notice, too, why he says this, he says, I have that understanding because I keep your precepts. Again, you see that practical side of wisdom. It's not just knowing the commandments, but it's keeping the commandments. And on that basis that he can claim this greater understanding, I keep your precepts. Now, Um, I think there's another uh, thing that we want to look at uh, here in these three verses. And that is that there are several different progressions, I guess you could say, here in these verses. He begins, for example, in verse 99, with talking about having the um, commandments of the Lord. They are ever with me. They belong to me. So he first talks about having... Then he talks about meditating in the next verse and about keeping in the following verse. So you move from having to meditating to keeping. You also have a progression, which you probably have picked up already, from enemies to teachers to ancients. And in each case, the comparison is a little more surprising to us. He, to compare himself to the ancients and to say, Uh, I have more understanding than the ancients. That's quite a claim for him to make. But there's also a progression in the three words for wisdom or understanding here. He talks about wisdom in in verse 98, which is the the practice of godliness. He talks about insight, which is the ability to think through (coughs) complex things, that is, to see the commandments in, in, in their interrelations with each other, to take these commandments and apply them to difficult situations and difficult questions in life and to come to the right conclusion. And then also, the, uh, and finally then, the understanding, which is the mental capacity of grasping the commandments. So this is a progression which works the other way. You get the... The stronger or the uh, more detailed concept at the beginning and works down backwards to the uh, simple idea of understanding, discerning. so there's there's this uh, complex interweaving, this very tight interweaving of ideas here in these three verses. But the whole thrust of it, the main idea is, your commandments, give me understanding, give me wisdom, give me insight. That's the main idea of the passage. It's from the commandments of God that we get our understanding, our discernment, our ability to practice godliness. They teach us these things. Then let's look at the other verses, the other four verses 97 and 101 to 103 and the thing that I want to call your attention to especially here is the focus on the uh, love which he has then for the law of God. He says, Oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And very obviously in this context, this is a, a the kind of statement he's made often, and he'll make it again in this psalm a number of times he keeps on talking about his love for the law and his delight in the law, but in this particular context, clearly his love for the law is arising out of the benefit the law has been to him, his the understanding the law has given to him, and he says, "I love your law because of that great understanding that he has obtained from it and not only does he love the law, but exactly because he loves the law, he continues to meditate on it. So he has meditated on it, and he has, through his meditation, become wiser than his teachers. But he's going to continue meditating on it too. It is my meditation all the day. He makes it his constant object of study. And he's there's no... Uh, possibility, of course, that he will be able to exhaust the riches of that law of God during a lifetime of study. But notice then the corollary of this in the last verse. He kind of puts, gives us the other side of the coin in the last verse. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. I love your law, I hate every false way. He hates all disobedience, he hates all falsehood, he hates it in himself and he hates it in others because of his great love for the law of the Lord. And then this idea of love comes out yet uh, further in 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey, to my mouth the study of the law of the lord is very sweet to him a delight but then there are a couple of other ideas associated with this as well verse 101 says i have restrained my feet from every evil way that i may keep your word you get the same pairing of ideas restraining from evil Corresponding statement is in 104, I hate every false way. And um, keeping your word, uh, the corresponding statement in verse 97, I love your law. So he's restrained his feet and he has kept the Lord's way because of the understanding which the law has given to him. And the same kind of statement made again in verse 102, I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. And here, of course, he makes clear that he's not boasting when he says I have more understanding than the ancients. He's saying this is because of your instruction. It's not anything that uh, I have of myself but because you Give me this great gift. And of course, if you think about this in terms of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see immediately how relevant and how readily this can be applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. He was always confounding his enemies during his earthly ministry by the wisdom with which he applied the word of God. I have more understanding than all my teachers. He certainly did exceed all his teachers during the whole of his earthly ministry. He astonished the uh, teachers of the law in the temple at the age of 12. I uh, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. So we see this exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. We see him making this claim And it's as we are in him, of course, that we also can claim understanding. He is our wisdom, as 1 Corinthians 1 says. So let's go on to verses 105 to 112. Again, here, no promises. No talking about the future in these verses. Now, Verses 97 to 104 had no petitions in it. Also, this stanza has three petitions found in verses 107 and 108. And I think that we may say that the main idea of this stanza is found in its first verse. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But this confession that the word is a lamp to his feet is in present circumstances of difficulty. And that's what we want to talk about as uh, we look at the first part of this stanza. Uh, There are many statements in this stanza that talk about his present and past circumstances. And there's one group of statements that talk about his relationship to the law in the past and the present. And another group of statements that talks about his relation to enemies in the past and the present. So we're going to look at both of those first, and then we're going to look at the three petitions in verses 107 and 108, and then we're going to take a look at that first verse. Your word is a lamp to my feet. So first of all, then, let's look at the statements in which he talks about his relation to the law. And he begins these statements in 106 when he says, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. He had made a promise in the past. He's recalling the promise now that he would keep the righteous judgments of the Lord. And he had not only made that promise, but he had sealed that promise with an oath. That is, he had called on the name of the Lord using a formula like, as the Lord lives, I will surely keep the righteous judgments of my God. He had made his promise, therefore, before the face of God in order to bind himself firmly to that promise, and he understood that the Lord also would bind him to the performance of that promise. This is an oath that he had made before the face of the Lord a promise he had made to God himself that he would keep his judgments and he understood the binding character of that promise and he, not only has he made it but he has also confirmed it he says so this was not a, a rash oath made at one time and later regretted but it was a an oath made and then later say, confirmed and saying yes I did the right thing when I did that we make this kind of promise When, for example, we promise at the time of the baptism of our children to raise them in the fear of the Lord. It's a a promise to keep the commandment of God, at least with regard to our children. We make this promise when we become members of a church. I will uh, obey the commandments of the Lord. My life will be conformed to those commandments. The Lord considers those binding promises. And we certainly must consider them to be binding promises for ourselves. This is an oath then which he reminds himself of here in verse 106. And which he reminds himself of with joy. I did it and I'm glad I did it. That's basically what he's saying here. I did this and I'm very glad that I did do it. That I bound myself in this way. Now he also talks about his relationship to the law in verse 111. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever for they are the rejoicing of my heart. Or your testimonies I have received as an inheritance forever, you could even translate. Now in order to illustrate the meaning of that think about uh, a will today in which, for example, your brother or some relative might uh, make you an heir of his possessions. But at the same time, as my wife and I did when we were much younger and our children were small, you might commit the care of your children to another brother or a, a guardian or something like that. So there's an inheritance on the one hand, but then that same inheritance includes this obligation that's how the psalmist is thinking of the testimonies of the Lord. Part of his inheritance from the Lord is his testimonies. The Lord has laid on him the obligation to keep his testimonies in his will, in his covenant. That he has promised him an inheritance. He has promised him the land. He has promised his, him himself as his inheritance, I am the Lord your God, I will give you the land which I swore to your fathers. This is the part, of, part of the inheritance as well, but he says part of this inheritance also is you have given me your testimonies. I've received these testimonies as my inheritance from you. You have laid on me these obligations. And he receives this inheritance from the Lord with joy. They are the rejoicing of my heart. Very interesting concept, then, of his relationship to the law of the Lord. The law is an inheritance, a blessed inheritance, which he has received from God. So he doesn't see this, these testimonies, then, as onerous. He doesn't look upon the commandments of God as being burdensome. In fact, never in this psalm do you see him complaining about the commandments of God as being a burden to him, being uh, uh, onerous to him. He's always rejoicing in the commandments of God. It's a very positive attitude towards the commandments at all times. And then the final statement about his relation to the laws in verse 12, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. So he has not only received them as an inheritance, but he has taught his heart to be inclined to them. There's an acknowledgement there that the natural state of the heart, of our hearts, is not conformed to the commandments, that they are not inclined to the commandments. He says, "I, I had to work at this. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. So that's the the three aspects of his relationship to the law of God. He swore an oath to keep them, he received them as an inheritance, and he inclined his heart towards them. But there's another whole set of circumstances that he talks about here, and that's the circumstances of being troubled by his enemies. And he talks about this also in uh, several verses, first in 107. He simply says there, I am afflicted very much. And we've talked about this affliction in the past, and we know at this point where that affliction is coming from, and the psalmist goes on to talk about where that's coming from in following verses. But let's look next at verse 109. My life, he says, is continually in my hand. that may seem at first obscure to us. What does he mean when he says my life or my soul is continually in my hand? Well, we use an expression that's very similar to this one. We say, for example, I took my life in my hands. And we mean that we've exposed our life to danger, that our life has been at risk in some way. Well, that's exactly what it means here. There are a number of places in the Scriptures where you can see this, uh, I'll refer you to just a couple of them. Judges 12 verse 3, this is Jephthah talking to the Ephraimites after they have accused him of not calling them to help with the war against Ammon. He says to them, so when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. He's saying, I put my life at risk. And it was at greater risk than it would have been if you had been by my side to help me in this matter. Or 1 Samuel 19, verse 5. 1 Samuel 19, verse 5 is another example of this same thing. Can't turn the pages here or separate the pages. Uh, This is uh, Jonathan talking to his father Saul about David for he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. So you see that this is what he's talking about. He's saying I exposed my life to danger. My soul was in my hands. And we see how, I think, in The second part of that verse, yet I do not forget your law. The yet should be simply, I think, and. My life is continually in my hand, and I do not forget your law. These two are, in a certain sense to him, equivalent statements. He's kind of saying the same thing. I exposed my life to danger. I did not forget your precepts. It is the very fact that he is keeping the precepts that has exposed his life to danger. I think That's what he means, and that's why it shouldn't say yet. He's remembering the precepts, and this is bringing risk into his life, bringing danger to him. And we see the danger it causes him then in Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. So the wicked have seen him as one who has not forgotten the precepts of the Lord. And the wicked have laid snares for him exactly because of that fact. His life is exposed to danger exactly because he has been remembering the precepts of the Lord. Very remarkable thing here. And he says this, and it's something that we have to recognize. It's the same kind of thing that our Lord says, that you better count the cost before you follow me. There are great costs. And one of those costs is that our life is exposed to danger, to the danger that wicked men bring. The wicked lay snares for him then in order to destroy him. But, he says, in the end of verse 110, I have not strayed from your precepts. So they have not moved me from my commitment to your precepts. So those are the of circumstances we need to see. First of all, his... Concept of his relationship to the law and secondly his concept of his relationship to his enemies And how his life has been in danger because of his enemies and It's in this context then that we find him praying in verses 107 and 108 The first of his petitions is revive me O Lord According to your word or make me live or give me life O Lord according to your word. I'm afflicted My life is in danger My enemies are laying snare for me. Give me life. Preserve my life. Give me that life which you alone can give, that life which is unassailable, which is everlasting, and which is life in the land of the living, in the land of light, and in the place of love. Revive me. The second place he says in verse 108 except I pray the free will offerings of my mouth. Free will offerings were of course voluntary offerings offerings that the Lord did not require his people to bring but for which he made provision in the law, he said, if you want to bring voluntar- voluntary offerings, these kind of offerings, this is how you should do it, and this is the kind of thing you should do. So he regulated them in the sense that he told them what to do and how to do it, but not in the sense that he demanded that they bring these offerings. They were free will offerings then in that sense. And here he talks about free will offerings of his mouth. These are offerings then of praise and thanks for the benefits the Lord has given to him, for the inheritance he has received. And he says, accept them. Whenever we ask the Lord to accept our offerings, there is an acknowledgement, of course, that our offerings are not worthy of him. We are very poor creatures and our offerings are very poor things. As very poor creatures, we cannot bring an offering worthy of the one who is so great in majesty and glory. And as creatures who are utterly dependent on him for all things and who can only return to him what is already his, we cannot bring an offering of thanks and praise which measures up to the greatness of the benefits. He has bestowed on them. He has to condescend to us in accepting these poor offerings at our hands. But he wants to bring them. Accept them, he says, because I am bringing them to you. My praise and my thanks. And finally, he says, teach me your judgments. In this setting then in which he says not only I have received your testimonies as my inheritance not only has my life in, my, in, in danger because of my enemies but he adds to this continue to teach me. He's so far in fact from departing from the commandments of the Lord from forgetting his precepts that he wants to know more. even though it will maybe make his life even more at risk than it was. Then we come finally to the main idea of the stanza in verse 105, and to what really is driving all this confession, and then these petitions in the rest of the stanza. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Here's why he's so desirous of uh, learning the Lord's judgments and what drives everything else. So let's look at that for a moment. Your word is a lamb to my feet and the light to my path. He's, he's simply saying, of course, uh, it's from your word that I learn how to walk here in the world. You have called me to walk with you. You have said I will be your God and you will be my people, and you will be my servant, and you have told me how it is that I may walk with you. Your word sheds light on that path that you have laid before me. There are a couple of things about that I think that we can note. First of all, the word for path is not the word which would be uh, the normal word for path, an ordinary path that you might think of at any time. But it's a word that means, uh, we might say, a track, uh, a a difficult, uh, a byway, a, a back kind of way. You find this word in Judges 5 verse 6 in the Song of Deborah and Barak. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. That's the word that you have here. And you find that word also in Job 28, when Job is talking about uh, miners mining from beneath the surface of the earth, and he he says there, Job 28, verse 7, um, that path No bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. So it's a path that's in darkness. It's it's an underground path, and it's an obscure path. It's a dark path. And there's a couple of other passages you could point to, too. What he's saying then, he's talking not about just the highways of life, as it were, but he's talking about these back ways, these minor ways of life, perhaps you might say. And the word of God sheds light on all his paths, on all his ways even those uh, byways. But also we should note about this, that these are ways which are naturally dark. They are ways which are dark because of our sins, because of our ignorance, because of our enemies, too, sometimes. Our enemies Obstruct and obscure those ways as much as they can for us. But God's word sheds light on them. This, this fact that the word of God sheds light on his ways explains all the rest of the stanza, I think. explains his love for the law. It explains his oath that he will keep the law. It explains his desire to learn the law. It explains his free will offerings. All of this is explained by the fact that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And to then take this and apply it to our Lord Jesus Christ, he is our light on our path and our salvation. Whom then shall we fear?